Well, on July 8th, 2012, we began our study in the book of Genesis. It's been 18 months about, and we, com- we pretty much finished Genesis chapter 50 last week. And so, a lot has happened in the past year and a half. In fact, some of you uh, probably have never been to this church before a year and a half ago. Some of you may have missed a few of the messages. Some of you may not have heard any of the messages. So I'm going to do a review. Before we, we discuss the text, we should read the text before we begin. So Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> Here we go. What I'm going to do today is there is just some wonderful, wonderful uh, truths in the book of Genesis. And one of the things that I've attempted to do in our study through the book of Genesis is not only point out the the theological implications, but what I wanted you to see is that Genesis, like all 66 books of the Bible, but Genesis is not an independent book that simply stands by itself, but rather it is a book that is connected with the rest of Scripture. And I've tried throughout our study to show how we've entitled our study in Genesis, the book of beginnings, and how pretty much everything you and I hold to, whether it's justification by faith alone, or whether we believe that a Messiah or a Savior is going to come, regardless of what we believe about man and his particular nature, all of those things find themselves, find their source in the book of Genesis. And so I'm trying to connect these themes that we that originate in Genesis, but they don't stop in Genesis. They run themselves all the way through, really all the way through Scripture. So next week when we begin to study the book of Revelation, we're going to study this. We're studying the first, we'll study the, the last, and I hope to connect some of those themes. But I want you to understand that when we read the the books. When we read scripture, when we read whatever particular book it is, Malachi or Acts or whatever, and what, that book is independent, on the other hand, we need to understand that all of those authors were writing about a singular theme. And those themes run through the scripture. The reason they are united is because there is ultimately one author of scripture. Yes, there were various Men who put pen to paper, or parchment, or leather, or papyrus, and they wrote the scriptures, but there is one author behind it all, that is God Almighty, who guided their hands and inspired them through the Holy Spirit to put down uh, the words of scripture. And so we should not be surprised that the themes run all the way through, all the way through the Bible. So here's what I'm going to attempt to do today. I would like to discuss three big themes in the book of Genesis, and then I'll close with another big theme. So actually there's four themes. First theme I want to deal with is the 
element of God, God in Genesis. What do we learn about God after all? I, I, well, I'll get to that. We want to talk about what do we learn about man. And then finally, what do we learn about the Messiah? And then in the end, we'll look at how do I apply all of that to my life today. So we want to talk a little bit about God in the book of Genesis. God is probably the, maybe one of the most hollow, empty terms used today. God is anything you make him up to be. Just ask people what they think about God. The Bible is very clear, has a very specific understanding about who God is, and God is not just whatever we want God to be. The first thing we learn is that God is... I'm going to use this term, God is other. I like that term. I like that word, God is other. And, and, and we come across this in the very beginning of the very first Some people have said this is the most dangerous verse in the Bible because maybe the most important verse in the Bible. I know that's kind of hard to do. What's the most important verse? I don't know. Genesis 1. Because see, if you believe Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There comes then, and I'll discuss this a little bit later, there comes then a responsibility and an acknowledgement of that God. And there comes both privilege and responsibility to the God who created the heavens and the earth. But one of the things we learn is that God is other. Now God has created everything out of nothing, one of the things we learned in Genesis 1, a year and a half ago, we talked about this, so I know it's still really burning in your minds that you haven't forgotten. I owed up what we talked about a year and a half ago when I began Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is an argument or an attack, if you will, fancy word is the polemic against the false gods. You have to remember that Genesis wasn't written in a vacuum that when Moses, who's the author of Genesis by the way, wrote this there were all sorts of cultures around them who had their own understanding of how things came about. You can read all kinds of creation accounts from other religions. And I believe that Genesis chapter 1 is an attack and a, a polemic against these other gods. You will find that the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel when Moses wrote this, the gods that surrounded Israel were very human. In fact, it just took human characteristics to the most part and magnified them. And that's not too far distant from what people believe today. People make up their own gods, and when you press them and ask them a little bit about the gods in their own minds, you will find that they look a lot like themselves. They'd be better, but they look a lot like them. And the gods that were created in the uh, ancient Near East were kind of superhuman gods, but they had the same 
downfalls as human beings. They were prideful, they were arrogant, they were narcissistic, they were envious of one another. They would kill one another and then create the worlds out of the dead body of one of the other gods. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The ancient gods, some of the ancient gods were the sun and the moon and the stars and they gave them great names. You will notice in the book of Genesis that God just simply calls them the greater light or the lesser light. Doesn't even bother to name them because I am the creator, I am the God of them. So we see that God creates out of nothing and that God is God of all. He is the Lord of all. The other thing then that we learn about God in the book of Genesis is that God is a revelatory God. And what I simply mean by that is that God reveals himself. God makes himself known. And we see this again in Genesis 1. I know some of you are troubled. It's like, oh my goodness, we're only in Genesis 1. We're never going to get through 50 chapters. When we look at Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then we talk about all the ways, all the things that God did. God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. Let me, tell, let me ask you this. Moses wrote this book. How did he get that information? He wasn't there, was he? Somebody had to tell him about this. How does he know that on the first day God did this and on the second day God did that and on the third? How does he know how he got created? He wasn't there. Somebody had to tell him. I'm going to assume that it was revealed to Adam and passed on down, either, on, uh, either written down or by oral tradition. But what this tells us then is that God reveals himself to his creation. Our God is a revelatory God. The reason we know about God is because God has revealed Himself. This is amazing. Because, see, the first thing we learn is that God is other. That He is the creator of all things. That He is all-powerful. That there is nothing that He does not rule over. And we stand in awe of that. And by that, some have come to the conclusion then that God is out there somewhere. But we are, not only is God out there somewhere, transcendent, we might say, separate from his creation, not dependent at all upon his creation. Not only is God transcendent, but God is imminent. That is, God meets and dwells with the people that he has created. God interacts with those he has created. So God not only is all-powerful, but God dwells with the ones he's created. Look at this verse in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. This is just a beautiful verse. For my, man, my hands have made all these things, thus all these things came into being. That's an amazing God is saying, I made all this stuff. All right, look around. I made it. It's mine. I created it out of nothing. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. God is the transcendent, all-powerful creator God who then said, yes, I will have communion with my creation. 
And so we see a God who is other, he is transcendent. We see a God who is imminent. The next thing we, we learn about God is that God knows. What does God know? Well, God knows everything. First of all, we see that God knows the hearts of men. Genesis 6, chapter 6, verse 5, that God sees that every thought and intention of the heart was wicked always. I don't know if that's the exact quote, but you get the point. He knows the hearts of men. Usually when we talk about the hearts of men, that God knows it is... Uh, usually on the negative side of things. God knows our hardness. God knows our wickedness. But God also knows when, when your motive is right and it comes across and everybody thinks you're the wrong thing. Everybody done, done something that you know is right and everybody else says you know what? They, they ascribe to you or assign to you an evil motive even though you know you did the right thing. God knows that too. Perhaps maybe one of the, the greatest passages of Scripture of God knowing is found in Genesis chapter 16. You remember when Hagar was cast out by Sarah and she fled from Sarah and she's in the wilderness and, and basically has no idea what's going on. Here I am. I am. There's really no hope for her. And she's out in the wilderness perhaps thinking this is the end. And God shows up. And God says, Hagar, I know your present situation. I know the injustice that's been done to you. I know the abuse that's been inflicted upon you. I know these things. And I have great promises for you, Hagar. You're going to have a child, and I'm going to take care of that child, and I'm going to take care of you. I see the injustice, but believe me, Sarah's injustice towards you has not gone unnoticed and Hagar says, you are the God who sees. For some people, the fact that God sees makes them look very uncomfortable. Really, God sees what you're doing. God sees what you're doing. But when you are going through a crisis or a difficulty and you wonder, does God know anything about this? God even here, God sees. Another thing we learn about God is that God is sovereign. And what I mean by God being sovereign is that God rules over all. There is nothing outside of the realm or the authority of God. God is on his throne and God rules over all things. Man, we are going to see this in the book of Revelation. I mean, if there is one image in the book of Revelation that is dominant is the fact that there is a God who is seated upon His throne and the kingdoms of this earth have no authority, have no power. The, the, the readers of these poor persecuted churches in the book of Revelation see Rome and Caesar as this huge power. Who can overcome Caesar? Who can overthrow Rome? It seems impossible. And John gets a vision of a God who is high and exalted and who rules over all. And while the earth people are saying Caesar is Lord, the people of God are saying Jesus is Lord. Because He is the one who rules over all things. And we see that over and over again in the book of Genesis. God 
rules over all. Some of the places that we see God rule over, God is the rule. God has authority over life. God makes alive. We see this most explicitly in that God brings life from the deadness of Sarah's womb. The Bible tells us that Abraham and Sarah, by all human reason, were dead. At least in regards to having children. Long dead. That is never a hindrance to God who rules over all. God makes life and he brings to life that dead womb. When Jesus walks into the tomb of Lazarus, dead four days. He's dead, dead, dead. Lazarus come forth. And the dead are made alive because God is sovereign over life. God's even sovereign over death. In fact, in the book of Genesis, we see two people put to death by God. Troubling to some. But if we are to bow before a sovereign Lord, we need to realize that He is sovereign over all things. God is also sovereign over election. And I know that's a, a really dicey subject. Uh, the bottom line, though, is that probably all believers, all Christians, believe in election at some, some degree, regardless of the matter debate how you understand um, the doctrine of election. You probably believe in election because it's explicit in Scripture that God is sovereign in election. Where do we see this explicitly? Well, we, we see it explicitly in, in the birth of Esau and Jacob. You remember Rebecca. Two nations are in your womb. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Paul looks back at that and he says, what have the older done? Or what have the younger done to preserve, to, to deserve prominence, to deserve to be exalted? Nothing. I've heard people try to make the case that, well, Jacob's really more godly. Really? After we've studied through Genesis, really? <laughs> Jacob, sometimes I just despise that in his human being, just literally despised him. Or, well, you know, Jacob was... not really. You say, and then why did God choose Jacob? You got me. We'll go back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God. I don't even begin to ask me. I don't know. Other than God is sovereign. God is also providential. Providence differs in the fact that God is all power. Providence basically is that God works through the mundane events to bring his purposes to fruition. See, God works miracles, right? We all believe that. I fully believe that God works miracles. A lot of miracles that God sends the laws of nature. 
He bring forth a miracle like he makes an accent flow. He raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a miracle. Suspended the laws of nature. The laws of nature when you're dead, you're dead. Right? When you're dead four days, you're dead four days. And there is no coming back from that. You would need to suspend the laws of nature to bring a dead man to life. Or you would need to suspend the laws of nature to walk on water or to feed 5,000 with a couple of fish and some loaves. You would need to suspend the laws of nature to do, do those types of things. That's not what I'm talking about. God does that. But here, God is providential in that God works through the everyday, non-supernatural events of your life to bring about His purposes. And I think maybe one of the greatest examples, not in the book of Genesis, actually in the book of Ruth, where it says, and I forgot the chapter, but Ruth happened upon the field of Boaz. I would love that. That's just one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Just so happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz, and then her and Boaz, you know, get married and have kids, and then, of course, from then comes Jesse, and then from Jesse comes David, and from David comes Christ, and from Christ comes our redemption. Just happened to be in the field of Boaz. Really? We see it in Genesis and when uh, when Abram's, Abraham's servant goes up to find a, a wife for Isaac, and it just so happens that Rebecca shows up that same time of day. Really? See, this is God working the mundane events of your life. Your salvation was a supernatural miracle of God. However, the events that led up to that were probably God's pride. I mean, how did you end up in the place that you ended up where you heard the gospel that time in order that you accepted the, the truth about Christ? You probably remember, man, all these things had to work for me to be in that specific time and place, for me to hear the gospel that specific time and place, and I received the salvation that God offered me, and I became a new creation, born again. My sins were forgiven. And you look back at all the events that had to happen to get you to that place. You just happened to be there. God is providential. God is working things. And, and we see this. He gives life. God maintains life. God involves himself in directional things. We see this in Genesis chapter 45, verse 7. I love this passage of scripture when Joseph finally confronts his brothers and he tells them, You sold me here, but God sent me here. Man, what a great scene. You sold me, God sent me. And then in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, See, you brothers, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good, to save a people alive. See, God worked all this stuff out to bring you to the place where He wanted to bring you. I read this uh, interesting statement that I think is applicable for us when we deal with the providence of God. It goes like this. Speaking of Joseph and his brothers, if Joseph's brothers never sell him to the Midianites, then Joseph never goes to Egypt. 
If Joseph never goes to Egypt, he has never sold to Potiphar. If he has never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape, he is never in prison. If he is never put in prison, he never meets the baker and butler of Pharaoh. If he never meets the baker and butler of Pharaoh, he never interprets their dreams. If he never interprets their dreams, he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. If he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he is never made prime minister. And if he is never made prime minister, he never wisely administrates the severe famine coming upon the region. And if he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region, then his family back in Canaan perishes from the family. And if his family back in Canaan perishes from the family, then Messiah can't come forth from a dead family. And if the Messiah cannot come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, you are dead in your sins and without hope in this world. God's providence. You meant it for evil. You sold me. God sent me. And in the bigger scheme of things, it was to bring forth a Savior that you and I can sit here today and rejoice that God has saved us from our sins. Finally, the thing we learn about God is that God is gracious. Genesis is all about grace. And we see this, of course, most prominently after Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. And God, what does God do? He seeks after them. They ran from Him and He seeks after them. And He provides for them appropriate covering. Cover for their, their sin and their shame. The fancy term for that is atonement. He covers them. For what basis? Did God owe them anything? You know, nothing. And God covers them out of grace. We even see grace for Cain. Cain has nothing, no merit whatsoever. He's a murderer, killed his brother, hated God. And God still showed mercy and grace upon him. Grace is all over the book of Genesis. Well, that's a few things we learn about God. Some things we learn about man as well in the book of Genesis. And the first thing we learn about man in the book of Genesis is that man is created in the image of God. And let me clarify. It's very clear I believe Genesis 1.26. I know they got that passage wrong. But he created man, he created them, male and female. He, God created them in his image. I want you to understand, male and female are in the image of God. We hold firmly to the fact that male and female are both created in the image of God. They are completely equal in essence. We're different in function. We do things differently. There's a big push today to flatten or to completely eliminate the distinction between male and female. We want to make sure that there's some sort of gender neutrality. This is horrific inside of God. God created male and female. Equal in essence, and we're different. We're made different. We process information differently. We are emotionally different. We think different. I don't know about, I, I can only speak from a male perspective. And most males will agree with me. Me and my wife think different. 
Son, Holy Spirit, equal in essence, different in function. You and I are equal in essence and different in function. We celebrate that because we reflect the very nature of God. We are the image of God. He created He, them, male and female, to be in the image of God. That's the first thing. The other way that God has created us is whatever you think of being created in the image of God, I think one of the important elements is that we have the ability to commune and to understand our Creator. Because God speaks to Adam. God speaks and communicates with Adam and Eve. This is both a blessing and a warning because if God communes and communicates and has fellowship with His creation, then we are accountable to the things He says. So when God tells Adam, of every tree of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree that's in the middle of the garden you shall not eat, lest the day that you eat it you shall die. All that stuff out there, it's all yours. Take whatever you want, that one thing. You are accountable to that one thing. We are accountable to the commandments and the precepts and the laws that God has given us. This is both blessing and warning. We can commune with our Heavenly Father, which may be one of the greatest blessings that we are given. On the other hand, we are accountable to the things that God has said. The next thing we learn about man in the book of Genesis is that man is a rebel. <clears throat> of course, we see this in Genesis as man seeks autonomy to do things his own way as man seeks to be independent a free agent he seeks autonomy and he becomes enslaved and Adam's sin begins an avalanche of sin that covers all of human history Romans chapter 5 verse 12 I think I put it up on the screen Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, folks. Adam's sin spread to all of us. This is what we call original sin. Original sin is not the first sin that Adam committed. The first sin is that his sins, original sin, is that Adam's sin spreads to all mankind. 
we are we sin because we're sinners by nature. So we learn, and I know many many people say, "Oh, well, that's not fair. Why do I have to be held accountable for Adam's sin? Something that was done a long, long time ago. That doesn't seem fair." Let me ask you, then, if that's not fair, is it fair that in Christ's righteousness would be imputed to you as well? Man is thoroughly sinful and lost. And we don't like to hear that today. That is not the way you build a church. We tell, try to tell you that you're really a good person. But man is thoroughly sinful and lost. And we see this all over the book of Romans. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue... They keep deceiving. Poison of asps is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past. Paul just piles up. Genesis or Romans chapter one verses twenty-two through twenty-five. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts their impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 for you were dead by reason of the trespasses and sins and by nature were children of wrath we learn that the sinfulness spread we learn that it spread to Cain it spread to Lamech that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, that the hearts of men grew so wicked. And that death spread to all men. In fact, in Genesis chapter 5, what is the, the repeat phrase? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Genesis is telling us that the, that the sin of Adam is spreading, and he died. God sees the rebellion and the hearts of men being wicked all the time. And the earth is destroyed with flood, but the flood didn't wipe out the virus. Because afterwards Noah gets drunk. There's all sorts of shady things going on. People build a tower to Babel and Babel to basically replace God and to be God. And the sin goes on and he died. And he died, and he died, and the sin of men keeps going on, and it leads us to the question, who can save us? What do we do about that? Fortunately, Genesis does not leave us that question unanswered, because in the book of Genesis is the promise of a Savior. I want you to understand that Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end of our faith. He is the grand theme of Scripture and that there is life beyond this curse. And we see it in the very beginning. Well, what was the command? In the day that you eat of the tree, you will die. And you know I couldn't get through this message without going to Genesis 3.15, right? <laughs> 
maybe one of the greatest passages. Certainly it is the beginning of the gospel. God curses the, the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. There will be this conflict between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And her seed and your seed will bruise him on the heel, but her seed will bruise you on the head, literally will crush your skull. First of all, I want you to see the promise that there will be a seed. That means there's going to be life. And the day that you will lead of it, you will die. I think death has not only the idea of cessation of existence, but it also has the idea of separation. And there was separation, for sure. And death eventually came to Adam and Eve. But now he says it's not the end of things. There's going to be a seed. There's going to be life. There's going to be conflict in this. There's going to be a seed. It's going to be, it's understood, notice it is a singular seed. Not there will be seeds that come from her. There will be a seed. There will be a singular individual who will crush the skull of the serpent and destroy his works. Don't you find it interesting? Right now there's enmity between you. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed. There will come a singular individual who will crush your head. We're going to see that definitely in the book of Revelation. We're going to see this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is often called the Proto-Evangelium. The first gospel. And then, just to make you understand that there is hope Adam calls his wife Eve, which means life, mother of the living. I think at that time, Adam believes. By faith, he believes the word of God and says, yes, this is not the end of things. And I'm going to call my wife Eve, because she's the mother of the living. There will be life. And the seed is preserved. Cain kills Abel. Once again, seed of the woman versus seed of the serpent. The line of Cain degenerates, and we see that exemplified in the person of Lamech. But there's another seed. God raises up another seed, the seed of the woman in the line of Seth, which is epitomized in the line of Enoch. We'll talk about him in a bit. And then we see Noah, a righteous man, and Abram. And in Abram, God makes a promise, says, I'm going to create a nation out of you. And then he says, in you, in you, Adam, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul calls this the gospel beforehand in Galatians chapter 3. That in you, Adam, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Do you see? We have a gospel in 3.15. We see the gospel in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. I guess let me just summarize with this. Our faith is not a New Testament faith. I want you to understand that. Everything that you and I believe began in Genesis. Jesus was promised in the beginning and God has faithfully brought about his plans and we have been redeemed by the, the promised Messiah that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. So we ask the question, who can save us? The Messiah who was promised us in Gen Genesis 3.15 was promised to Abraham. 
who was prophesied by um, by Jacob in the in his son being fulfilled in in the lineage of Judah. All the way through Genesis, we see a a Messiah's coming. And we see this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And God preserves the seed of the woman. So I'll conclude with this then. So then how do we appropriate this? If that is indeed the fact, if we ask the question, then who can save us from this state that we are in? Total that there is no part of our being that is affected by, not affected by the fall. Who can save us? And we put forth that Jesus is that promised seed. Then what do I do about it? How do I appropriate that promised Messiah to my life? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us just some wonderful, wonderful truths. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 starts with this by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which was it through which he attained the testimony that he was righteous how did he become righteous in the sight of God how was he placed in right standing in the sight of God by faith He was made righteous. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained a witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. On what basis was Enoch spared death and taken up to see God? By faith, because he walked with God. Noah, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for salvation of his household, which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah's righteousness was not a self-generated faith. It was a faith that came from believing God. And Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. Sarah, in chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even when beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who promised. How was she justified? By faith, you see that Sarah laughed. How many of you laughed the gospel, the truth of God, the first time you heard it? And you're going to cast a version on Sarah because she laughed? I mocked everybody who came to me. And then one day, I stopped mocking. Because by faith, time will not permit us to talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. All of them justified by faith. So we've learned about God. We've learned about our helpless and hopeless state. We have learned about the Messiah to come. And then the question is, what do I do about it? We need to believe what God has said. Justification by faith is not a New Testament, nor is it even a Reformation idea. It is an idea that finds itself in the book of Genesis. 
Justification by faith has always been the way a person is made righteous. You are never justified by works. Never. Always by faith. And so we believe the Word of God. And the Word of God is this. That God has sent His Son into the world to redeem this world. And to redeem you from your sins. He died and took your place upon a cross. And bore your sins and bore the wrath of God in His body on the cross. We see... In the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 9. And may be found of him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then finally, Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, says this. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is not Paul's view. This is God's view. And it was found in the book of Genesis. That if you will believe, Jesus, if you will believe with your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is Lord. You will be saved. Let's stand and let's pray.